We've got a fight on this morning. And some nice intro music for people handing out Bibles. If you'd like to follow where we're going to be going this morning, and you don't have a Bible in front of you, then please put your hand up and somebody will kindly pass a Bible to you. Okay, and just as they're doing that, you'll have seen behind me, I'm introducing, we've got a fight between two parties this morning. In the red corner, we've got Paul's gospel, and standing in the blue corner, we've got the Judaizers' message. So we're going to be having a little look at that today. Um, Okay, thank you very much. (laughs) Um, We're going to be looking at the um, book of Galatians, or a theme running through it um, today, this morning. But we're going to start round one of our fight this morning, um, based in Acts. And um, you can turn to it if you want, but you don't need to refer to it directly. But throughout Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 13 through uh, to chapter 14, we see Paul preaching uh, the gospel around this area called Galatia. And what he's doing there is he's just been, you know, for the first time, laying the foundations of the gospel um, to the churches in that area. Um, it's now now known as Turkey. And some of the places that you'll see listed in there include um, the Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And this is what the message that Paul preached in that area um, that you can see in Acts chapter 13 and verse 38. And he, he walks them through the Old Testament and explains that to them before saying this. My brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. i read that again. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. This message of freedom had a huge effect on the people in the area. And we see this through various accounts, and I'll just quickly list them now. So in 1342, it says, The people invited them to speak further. It says that the next week, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. We also hear it described that the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. A man in Lystra who was crippled from birth was healed. He jumped up and he began to walk. In Derby, it says that they won large numbers of disciples. And it also reports that they appointed elders in each of the churches in the various cities that they visited, um, that Paul visited preaching the gospel too. The effect of the message of Jesus was massive. People were saved, people were healed, and churches were started. However, the Judaizers didn't like it. They fought back. And in chapter 13 of Acts and verse 45, it says, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Paul, however, had his guard up. He's not taken by surprise, and he warns the believers from the prophet Habakkuk, and he says in chapter 13 and verse 41, Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Paul knew that some wouldn't believe. And whilst Paul is dominating the fight at this time, there is a small number of unbelieving Jews who throw some damaging blows. 
These Judaizers, as, as the term I'm using, the, this term for them basically means that they would determine that the believers, and in particular these new believers in Galatia, should become also like Jews. They believed if someone was to be a part of God's people, then they also needed to operate and be like a Jew. And being part of their, being part of a Jew meant taking on some of their practices, taking on their nationality. And also it didn't really affirm their status that they felt they had, the things that Paul was preaching. And so we see a few examples there of how they began to oppose Paul. It says that firstly they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. They even won some of the crowd over and stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. This really was a fight. It was fierce and it was bloody. The gospel message of those who, for those who believed was powerful and effective in the area, but it wasn't without serious opposition. So the fight so far in Galatia is underway. Despite some painful blows, Paul and the gospel message of freedom for those who believed has had a radical impact. And though Paul was expelled from the city, it says that the disciples were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So though he had been attacked with stones to the point where actually they thought they'd killed him, the next day he was actually able to move on. He preached the good news and won a large number of disciples. So the bell rings and round one goes to Paul and the gospel message. However, As we start to look into the book of Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians, you don't have to read for very long before you start to discover that the Judaizers made some serious ground in this fight whilst he was away and returned home. In fact, as early as verse 6 of the first chapter, um, just after he's introduced himself and greeted them, this becomes clearly evident. He writes this in Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. You, by the grace of Christ, are turning to a different gospel. Things have gone very bad since Paul has left. Back in this first round in Acts, Paul was preaching the gospel to the Galatians, and there had been strong opposition. They'd been confronted, but ultimately, you know, this gospel message um, had been effective and new churches had been established. How is it then? That now the Galatians are in a state where Paul can accuse them and say that they're turning away from God and that they're following another gospel. Again, we read Paul strongly admonishing them in Galatians chapter 3 for the damaging work of the Judaizers. And it's this scripture in particular that I want us to focus on this morning as it summarizes um, this fight that's going on well. Although you'll see these themes repeated throughout the entire book. So we're going to read Galatians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 5. 3, 1 to 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Had you been around at the time, you may have wondered, what's all the fuss about? I mean, sure, 
There are some people who, amongst them who started to change the type of food that they ate. And yes, some of them were getting circumcised. But at the end of the day, are any of these things really that bad in um, of themselves? They're just actions. And these are the things that the Jewish people had done for hundreds and hundreds of years before then. And Jesus himself, he came from the Jewish people. You can imagine them saying, we're convinced that Jesus is the son of God and was raised from the dead. If we're now being told that we also need to go along with a few Jewish practices and the fewer extra laws and additional actions, well, it's not particularly a big deal. And yet, Paul's calling them foolish, and he's calling them bewitched. And furthermore, he's saying that he's astonished that they've abandoned God. You could imagine their response. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Abandoned God? There's just been some guys that have come along since you've left, and they've been showing us that now we're Christians. There's some Jewish laws that we've got to keep hold on to. After all, the Jews have always been God's people, and now we're part of God's people. So surely we also need to become like them. And admittedly, at a glance, it doesn't seem like things are all that bad. Or at least not so bad for him to call them foolish and to wonder who's bewitched them. And he's accusing them. I mean, isn't it a bit over the top? Couldn't Paul have been a little bit more inclusive? Did he really need to be so angry with them? Well, in fact, something had gone very wrong. Where previously the believers had stood up to opposition, now a much more subtle tactic has been reaping severe consequences amongst the believers in that area. The Galatians have been duped into giving up on Jesus and the gospel. They'd not stopped, they'd not stopped believing in Jesus, which was the main thing, sure, but Paul could have maybe tolerated them. No. The problem is that actually they were no longer putting their trust in Jesus. Imagine this. Imagine you have put somebody in trust of delivering a very, very important package. This actually happened this year on the 7th of July to a guy named Zachary Franklin from Windsor. He'd been in the British junior canoeing team since the age of 15, and this year he was 20 years old, and he was given a special honor for one day only. The Olympic Committee And the hopes of thousands of athletes, millions of Olympic fans around the world, his family, his friends, and all those lined up to watch what he was about to do, put their trust in him to carry the Olympic flame. This torch, having been lit back in Olympia, had travelled round Greece for seven days. And it had been brought over to the UK, and it had circled the full length and breadth of Great Britain, all the way across, even into Ireland. And it's travelled for 49 days, and now it lay in his hands. He'd been counted trustworthy and honoured to ensure that this lit torch was safely carried down a short course of water rapids in Cambridge. Fire, water, water and fire. Not a good mix, as you might imagine. This huge amount of trust being put on him to be a secure link in transporting this sacred flame to help it get to its eventual destination, to be witnessed by so many people in the Olympic Stadium. And as his teammates began to paddle the raft, and they started to make their way down the rapids, you can imagine one rapid was just a little bit too big. And as they ducked under the water, 
And he looked around himself to see the water clear. His well-trained arms didn't flinch. It was held well above him. He looked up to see. Shock horror. The flame is extinguished. It happened on day 50. Poor Zachary, with millions watching and the expectations around him, the flame was extinguished. But what happened next? Was there outrage? Did Sebco have to get on a plane and rush back to Greece and relight it on the original flame? You know, was there outrage? Was it reported massively in the newspapers? Not really. I mean, maybe the games need to be cancelled. There's no London 2012. Scuppered. The flame's been put out. It's all ruined. No. (laughs) Didn't happen, did it? But actually, something was revealed. Actually, they'd put a few other procedures in place. And I'm sure you know of some of them. The torch itself, well, actually, it has a backup flame inside it. There's a small flame out of view that can also sometimes stay lit. Not only that, there's a large security team that are employed to surround the journey that this flame is taking at every course of the way. There's guys in vans making sure that nothing's going to get in the way, stop it or harm it. And not only that, this this torch was one of 8,000 torches that had been made. And the flame, it wasn't the one and only flame. Around the corner were four vans holding four lamps with four more flames taken from the original source so there was backup plans so after the flame was extinguished all that happened was one guy calmly came over the boat pulled aside and he relit it and everything carried on as though nothing had happened but what does this reveal to us what do all the additional precautions the extra measures the extra safeguards reveal to us it reveals this they put so many other place things in place that actually the main mode of transport, Zachary, this guy, 20-year-old, was actually almost completely inconsequential. It revealed that, in fact, they had actually put absolutely no trust in him whatsoever. Poor old Zachary. (laughs) But this is also why Paul was furious with those who'd been adding to the beliefs of those Galatian Christians. This is why he accused them of forsaking the gospel. For by adding anything to it, Actually, what they were doing was taking Jesus out of it. By adding other requirements to belong to God's people, what you're actually saying is this. Jesus alone is insufficient. It's not enough just to have faith in Jesus alone. These extra laws for ritual sacrifices, circumcision, they weren't actually actually nice cultural add-ons or traditions. Actually, they had subtly but definitely planted the belief that Jesus alone wasn't enough. At that point, the Judaizers take the second round. But fear not, Paul's back for round three, and now it's his turn to lay the smack down a little bit. If we read um, our passage again in Galatians, which I've just lost, Galatians chapter 3 again, verses 1 to 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you had heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? 
And it's that phrase, do you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Or in other words, how did your salvation first come about? Paul is taking them right back to the beginning and he's given them two options to answer his question. One, were you saved by keeping the Jewish laws? Or two, were you saved by believing in Jesus? And Paul would have known that they would have full well known the answer to that question, which is why he said Jesus was being clearly portrayed. Paul's preaching was always gospel-centered around the fact that you are justified by faith. And this word justify, I'm sure you've heard, maybe heard it before, that it can be easily remembered the definition by justified sounding like just as if I'd never sinned. Or in other words, being in right standing with God comes through believing and trusting in Jesus. So let's run through a few examples of Paul's gospel and how it's centered so much on this. I'm going to read a few references now, so you may not want to flick to all of them. Mike, if you can keep up, great. Um, So Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Romans chapter 3 and verse 26 states that God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And Romans chapter 3 and verse 28 says, For we maintain that, that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Again in Romans 5 verse 11, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Galatians 2, chapter 2, verse 16, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. You can't get away from this in the message of the gospel. Jesus himself said it famously in John chapter 3 and verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And just before that, in verse 15, Jesus is saying, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And also, throughout the passages of John's Gospel, it's there time and time again. Um, This foundation for being saved is declared in John chapter 3 and verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And chapter 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. And then again in in chapter 6 and verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And again, in verse 47, finally, I tell you the truth, he who believes in me has eternal life. There can be no doubt that the only way to be saved is by putting your faith in Jesus. It's undeniable and it's resoundingly clear throughout the entire Bible Having a sense of spirituality cannot save you. Trying to act and lead a moral life cannot save you. Attending church cannot save you. No other person in history that has ever existed or will ever exist can save you. No historical background can save you. No belief or faith in anything else can save you. No ritual or practice can save you. Burying your head in the sand, distracting yourself with entertainment is not going to save you. Faith in Jesus and nothing else, nothing more, 
Nothing less is the only way to be saved and welcomed into God's presence now and forever. Faith in Jesus is the beginning of salvation for everybody. And that was the case for the Galatians. And that's the case for you and me today. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you can be set free. You can be set free from what the Bible calls sin. You can come to know God. You can come to become a part of his people. And you can know freedom. And you can know life for eternity. You just need to stop putting your trust in yourself, in all the things that I've just listed. And you need to come to know God by putting your faith and trust in who he is and what he has done. Faith in Jesus is like, is the only thing the Bible says that can bind us from what the Bible calls, set us free, sorry, from what the, what binds us. The Bible calls it sin. And this is not just the case then, but this has actually been the case throughout the whole of history. So the next verse in Galatians, um, in, in chapter three, verse six states this. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about Abraham because Mark's working through um, his story at the moment. But I just wanted to notice that, note this because it's a question that will often come up. The Jewish sacrificial law didn't come until after Abraham lived. And yet the Bible says he was counted as righteous in God's sight. The law came later and it did not save people in and of itself. What it actually did was it highlighted their sinful nature and it was a way in which people could exercise faith in the one who was to come. So by making sacrifices that they did, they were observing and observing the covenantal laws. Faithful Jews were displaying that they believed God and all that he promised. They were symbolically declaring that they needed God to save them and that they needed God to make them righteous. And though Jesus had not yet come to the world, it provided them a means by which they could put their faith in Jesus, even though he'd not been revealed to them fully yet. And Paul just puts it like this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now the Judaizers had missed this. And the whole time, they'd been pointing the Galatian people to the law. Keep the law. Keep the law. Whilst the entire time, the law was pointing at Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. And Paul has clearly been bringing them right back to the foundations of where they started. That the fulsome total of what is required to be saved is to have faith in Jesus. And there is no room and no need for anything else. And at the end of this round, a strong connection has been made. A roundhouse punch has landed squarely on their argument. And the Judaizers' message has been left with no chance of winning. But as we go into our fourth and final round, Paul delivers a knockout blow. He's been defending how they, what it, it is that is required for them to be saved. But now he just begins to encourage them how it is that they should now live. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Why, when these believers started in one way, are they going to continue in a different way? He puts it another way in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. If God sets a person free by his spirit and by faith in Jesus and not by human effort, why is there then a tendency for people to think and for us to think that our actions from then on have something to do and have an effect on our standing with God? And sure, there's an enemy who seeks to accuse us. But I think it's because it can be incredibly hard to accept the immensely generous nature of the gospel. It's scandalous how generous what God has achieved for us. Being justified by God is God declaring a legal verdict over us of not guilty, now free. He declares that over our lives when we put our trust in Jesus. And once more, no other counter-declaration or accusation can ever stand against it. It's a bit like somebody who's previously been in prison for many years. They're a convicted guilty criminal being released from prison. The sentence has fully been served and no longer the previous restrictions of a prison cell are in place anymore. They've been let out. Being justified by God is not a change in our internal condition. That comes later. It's an external verdict regarding our status. A judge has declared over us not guilty. And he's moved us out of a position of being in a prison cell and he's moved us out of it never to return. And like Susie's reminded us, it's got nothing to do with the gift that we bring. When you put your faith in Jesus, God declares you free from sin, not guilty in his sight, just as if you've never sinned. And though emotions and doubt may come to us at times, this cannot and will not change the position we're in. It does not move us out of the legally free position that God has put you in. However, as a prisoner, now become a free citizen, free to roam, free to go where you please, led out of the front gates, there's nothing underhand about it, it can be difficult at first to live as though we are totally free. Somebody let out of prison, they can choose to live their life in freedom, or they could choose to mimic their previous life in captivity and live as closely to it now in freedom as possible. So they might choose to have their meals at exactly the same time as when they were served at prison, or they might stick to just the same type of food that they were used to being given there. Or you could choose to never leave your house and just stay in that restriction. Or they could choose to embrace and make full use of the freedom that they've now been given. And this is what Paul is encouraging us to do. He says in verse 3 of that chapter, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And then in verse 5, he says, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? He's saying to us, You weren't saved by your own efforts. So now, don't try to live based on your own efforts, like you're still in captivity, but live by the Holy Spirit. As those set free by God, it's vital that we live our new lives in freedom, led by the Holy Spirit. So, if you like in... We heard about the Galatians in round one back in Acts. If you've heard that the gospel of Jesus Christ, you've heard this gospel that he was crucified, 
and he was raised to life. And if you, despite whatever changes and opposition this may create, choose to put your faith and trust in Jesus, and if you, having now been justified, are now made right with God by his declaration, what are you going to do now? Are you going to keep trying to earn what has already been achieved by God? Or are you going to live in your new life of freedom, released from captivity into freedom by the Holy Spirit? I urge us to live by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus, who saved us, also lived by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to leave us with these three kind of questions, really, three examples, very briefly, of Jesus being lived by the Holy Spirit. And maybe it's something that you can take time to consider. Maybe it's something that you might ask one another in your core groups. Firstly, Jesus was declared to baptize with the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, um, at the time of his baptism, it says, I baptize you with, sorry, this is John talking about Jesus who was to come. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Are you living your life in freedom, having been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Secondly, John states that at Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1, And verse 32, then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. The Holy Spirit was described to remain on Jesus. Do you recognize the continual need for the Holy Spirit in your daily life? And finally, this last point that we see in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. It says that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus continually knew the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to encourage us in our new lives of freedom achieved by God to go forward, not trying to do what Jesus has already done, but to live by the Spirit. Okay, let's pray.